I would also appreciate your prayers uh, for me uh, this week on Friday. Uh, God willing, I fly to Ecuador, uh, and I'll be preaching uh, Friday night when I arrive uh, at a, an associational meeting, and then also on uh, Saturday, and then on the Lord's Day at the um, at a church plant. I believe it's their constitution service, and then preach in the afternoon, and then Monday. I begin uh, 20 to 30 lectures on pastoral theology. I'll end Friday, uh, fly back Friday uh, afternoon. And uh, the older you get, the harder uh, those things are. Uh, also, I want to say a, a very warm welcome and, and, and a happy to see our brother Jacob Sherrill and his wife, Kara, uh, were uh, married over the, uh, on Friday, and we're thankful uh, that they're here on their way to a honeymoon uh, destination. So follow along as I read God's word, uh, Hebrews chapter 8. And remember, this is founding the assertion of the entire book of Hebrews that Jesus is so much better uh, than anything and uh, anyone that uh, the first century Jews may have been tempted to go back to. And here he's reminding them that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant, and that covenant is built upon better promises. Now we pick up the reading at verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there, then no place would have been found for a second, because finding fault with them, uh, some manuscripts would read, finding fault with it, that is the covenant itself, and both are accurate, obviously. The, the meaning of the passage doesn't ultimately change. There was a problem with the hearts of the people to whom the covenant was given. But there was, as it were, a problem with the covenant itself in that it was not a covenant of grace and a covenant of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. It was a preparatory covenant. It was to prepare the people in types and shadows for the coming of one greater. It was never intended to be a means uh, unto itself. The new covenant is not uh, God's plan B or plan C. It's not that the first covenant failed and God said, I've got to come up with something else. He had always intended that the first covenant, the old covenant, would be preparatory and transitory and that it would fade away and that the new and better would come. So just to make that clear. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. <laughs> For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Well, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time now to come to your word and then to take together the supper of remembrance. And Father, we are reminded in that that we hope in and have glory in the real presence of a real Christ who walks among his people. And Father, we thank you that you are not a God far away, but one who is near. And we pray now, Lord, that you would use your word in a, in a way that comforts and excites and gladdens your people 
and that draws those who are now strangers to that grace with cords of love to the living Savior of sinners. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Now, part of what it means to be a Christian is to accept and to believe God's revelation of himself as our supreme authority of life and faith, doctrine, and practice. That is, we believe what God says in his word. We trust his promises, and we do so because we believe they are his words. We do them because he has stated them, he has said them, and the one who has said them is himself altogether faithful. He does not and he cannot lie. And while God is to be trusted, listen, even when it appears that providence and promise cannot be reconciled. And the Bible talks about times when we wrestle with promise and providence. That there are times when it appears, note the language, that they cannot be reconciled. There are times, however, when God makes a promise and then so clearly fulfills that promise or proves that promise in such a glorious way that we are enabled to trust all his promises. In our text, the Lord, through the author of the book of Hebrews, has told us that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant that is the new covenant and that it rests upon better promises. Now, he could have simply said that and we would all have to believe it because we trust God. So God is going to make a new covenant. It's going to have better promises. But God not only makes the promise, he says, now let me give you a preview. Let me now expound upon the faithfulness of what I've declared. It's not just that I say there are better promises. I can articulate and flesh out what those better promises are. And there are four primary promises in this passage. The first is that God would deal with our nature by his regenerating spirit in regard to our disposition of obedience to God's law. That just as the law was placed in the ark in days gone by, so he would by his spirit place it in our minds. And just as he wrote it on tablets of stone, so now he would write it on our own hearts, which had been hearts of stone, now by his grace made hearts of flesh. The third promise, which we will, God willing, get to in a couple of weeks following, Lord willing, my return uh, from uh, Ecuador, is the reality that we would all know the Lord. And the fourth glorious promise is that he would forgive us all our sins. But we come this morning to consider the second promise, and that is the promise that he would be our God and that we would be his people. And so we have two points. The promise of God, I will be your God. And the second point, the promise of God, you will be my people. So let's consider the promise of God, first of all, I will be your God. Now, every once in a while when I preach a sermon on a very short passage of scripture, somebody says, I can't believe you got that much out of that little. You know, and, and the thought sometimes may be inherent in that, like, did you go a little bit overboard? Uh, it doesn't take that long to explain this, Jim. Well, this is something that at first glance is rather simple and straightforward, and, and, and it is that. But I think there is something 
really glorious here that I want to unpack and for us to consider. If you were to go around today or tomorrow and, and do a survey of people at a mall or at your workplace or knock on doors in your neighborhood and ask this question, do you believe that there is a God, big G or little g, do you believe that there is a God? Do you believe there is a higher power? Do you believe that there is a supreme being out there? I think most us would get an affirmative answer. Many would say that I believe there is, and some would say, well, I'm pretty sure I lean toward there being. Certainly there are things that are inexplicable and things in the world and in creation and, and, and providence and all the rest that would bespeak the reality that there is a God. But if I were to say, but is, is God your God? And by that I mean the God of the Bible. Is the God of the Bible your God? Or ask it another way when somebody says, well, I believe there is a God. Is that God your God in any meaningful way? And in that, we're asking the question, what does it mean to have a God? Or even to ask, why do people have gods? Because one thing that you will note if you study anything in regard to anthropology, man is religious. Religion isn't something simply dictated by some Western culture out there. All nations of the world, all tribes out there in the world, hidden in jungles out there, wherever they are, they are religious. People have always been religious. Paul said, in fact, he said, there are many lords and many gods. And the Bible is full of the worship, not just of the one God or the true God, but of many gods. And so why do people have a God? Or to add, I'll ask that more fully in a moment. Does it matter who your God is as long as you have one? Does it matter what your religion is as long as you have religion? Because aren't they all basically the same? Aren't all the gods basically the same? Don't they all fulfill the same basic function and purpose? Are not all religions ultimately the same? Because certainly we know we're told you're all going to the same place. Philistines had gods, the Ammonites had gods, the Moabites had gods, the Edomites had gods. And again, we know the names of various gods, and, and we know something about what those gods were like and what those gods demanded and what the religion of those gods produced. What would it mean to have Chemosh or Baal or Ashtaroth as your god? What difference to your life and soul would it mean to have Allah rather than Yahweh as your God? Does it make any difference? Again, as long as you have a supreme being. What if the God of the deists were your God? What comfort would our brother and sister have in going to the hospital tonight to know that there exists somewhere a supreme being who is totally hands-off who doesn't know them and doesn't care. Does our view of God entail anything more than theology and philosophy? Does the nature of your God or the reality of your God, whether he is a figment of your imagination or real, would it affect your day-to-day -day life, your choices, your ethics, your hopes, your dreams, your aspirations? Would it comfort you on your deathbed and breathe hope into your soul in your darkest hour? 
Would it affect what you love and how you love? Would it make any difference in regard to your politics and philosophy or your passions? What if your God was the kind of God described in Psalm 115? And listen to a commentary on these gods. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. And yet the text goes on to say that people trust in them. Isaiah describes a person who cuts down a tree. And with half of it, he cooks his fire. And with the other half, he makes a god, bows down to it, and says, deliver me. But what if your god was alive? What if he were holy? What if he spoke and revealed himself and his will? What if he could hear you when you cried? What if his heart were towards you in your need? What if he held people accountable? What if he were a God who had laws, holy laws and standards? What if he could love and be near and be called upon? What if he were trustworthy? What if he were wise and powerful? What if he could be present and bring comfort? And say to somebody, I am with you, do not fear. You see, these promises are only as grand and powerful and sweet and compelling as the one who makes the promise. If I said to you, and I'm almost horrified to say these words, but I'm giving an illustration. I was looking at a map the other day about Ecuador, and so I was showing somebody where Ecuador was, and I saw Guyana, which always reminds me of Jim Jones and his cult. Seems a lot of cultists have names like Jim. It's like one of those distressing. <laughs> but he stood up, in essence, and said to a people, I will be your God, and you'll be my people. If I stood up and said to you, listen, from now on, I will be your God and you will be my people, you would and should be morally repulsed and filled with grief or anger. And it would be the last words I would ever say in this pulpit. But if Moloch said to you, I will be your God and your children will be offered to me in fiery furnaces, or I will be your God and your sons and daughters will serve in perverse ways in my temple. So who is the God who says, I will be yours? He is a God who can be known and loved and served. We will see more of that, God willing, in, in our future installments. All of this is inherent in the words, I will be your God or I will be a God to you. So again, why do people have gods? Why do people serve gods? Well, because in some way they know that they have not made themselves. They know there's something more than the world of sense and sensation, more than what I can touch and handle and see and smell. 
There's something more. There's something more in my soul that longs for something more. There's a world to come. I have a, I have a soul. And again, they have needs that are beyond themselves. That's why they have gods. Hopes and aspirations and struggles that are all part of the human experience. And so they strive to know him, grasp, as Paul says, looking and striving to find this unknown God, though Paul says he is not far from each of us. And all of these things in our lives scream to us that there must be something more, and so I will look. And so some, again, find gods that they make. They pursue someone or something to worship because we are worshipers. It's part of what it means to be a human being. I think so often of the words of the old song from an album called Slow Train Coming. Some of you will know that. Uh, Bob Dylan. People probably don't, you know, some younger people don't know Bob Dylan as well as they used to. Uh, but Bob Dylan was quite the deal for a number of decades and for a time he professed faith in Christ and he did a couple of albums that had uh, spoke of a sadly temporary spiritual experience. But among those was, you're gonna ser- but you got to serve somebody. It might be this, it might be that, it might be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody. And so some will look to gold and say, will you be my God? Will you grant me what God's grant, you know, land and property and food and clothing? And will add to that reputation. And the God of gold says, I will leave you and I will forsake you. I will leave you unsatisfied. Further, I can be stolen and lost and taken away. I can be corrupted and turned to dust. And I will certainly desert you in the grave. So someone says to sex or relationships, will you be my God? And they say to trust in me is folly. I come and I go. I fail and depart. I grow old and tired and I die. I am faithful and unfaithful. Some turn to drugs or alcohol. Will you be my God? Will you meet my deepest need? Will you comfort me in my sorrow? And it says, yeah, I'll be your God, but the price will be your soul and your life. So some will say to self, will you be my God? Well, can I be my own God and say what is good and what is evil? Or you say to popularity, I will serve you for likes and reinforcement and security. I will offer you my dignity and my body. Will you love me and comfort me? And it says, no, I will shame you and disappoint you and depress you. I will chew you up and I will spit you out. So someone says to technology or science, will you be my God? Will you explain my world and my longings and my soul and assure me that these are all chemical reactions and there is no hereafter, no heaven above us, no hell below? Thank you, John Lennon, but no. Will you, science, having obliterated the foundation of morality, make me self-righteous and hateful of those who do not bend to your ever-changing rules? How different then to turn to one who is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, and truth, 
The God who says, in and by the blood of Jesus, I swear by covenant that I will be your God. I will be to you a God. Why do you look to a God? I will be that to you. A God who dwells in light and accessible. A God who is full of glory. The God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy, as we read in Psalm 103. The God of glory who appeared to Moses in Exodus and who went behind him, as it were, as he was hid in the cleft of the rock and pronounced his name, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sins, and by no means clearing the guilty. The God who could say to Abraham, I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. The one who could say to Moses, I am who I am. A God of glory, a God who is holy, who is almighty and yet dwells with the lowly. So that when he says, I will be your God. And when he says, do not fear for I am with you. You have to know who it is who's with you and who says and promises, I will strengthen you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He is pledging to give you all that he is to be to you a true and living God, a God who hears, who answers, a God with whom nothing is impossible, the God who speaks and reveals himself, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the promise of God. Who gets to be your God? Who do you want to be your God? Not a God of men's imagination, but the God who spoke the world into existence is our God. So now let's consider the promise of God that will be his people. Now this is a transaction of grace. He does not simply declare them his, and, and, and that's it. And it's not just that he says, you're mine, but rather he spiritually resurrects to make them his. Not just by doing good work to them, but by the alteration of their hearts and minds, by the transformation of their life, they become his. So that they are not only adopted, as glorious as that is, but that they are born anew, born from above, born by his spirit. So that, as John says, they have within them the seed of God. And if I may use this language, in your soul is the spiritual DNA of your father. So that you can test, as it were, your spiritual DNA and see, as John says, that it's manifest either the devil's your father or or God is your father. Because the seed of God is within you, transforming you. They shall be mine, separated by my grace and changed by my power, kept by my spirit, loved of me, adopted by me, born of me, cared for by me, carried by me through the trials and tribulations of life. So that you not only say, God, I know that in all of the revelation of who you are, you're mine. But in all of the revelation of what you say, I am, I am yours. A people chosen before the foundation of the world. 
given to the Son by the Father. All that the Father has given me will come to me. Loved and purchased by the Son. And he says, of those the Father has given me, I lose none. No pastor can say that. But Jesus can say that. I raise them up. I keep them. I will raise them up on the last day, raised and sealed by the Spirit. All this and much more is what is promised here in the new covenant. And there is a depth and a beauty in the essence of this promise from the new that though this is a repetition of an old covenant promise, all of this, this whole section, I will be your God and, 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 and you will be my people, is a repetition of an old covenant promise. But remember, there's something new and something better being said. And his statement here, I will be your God and you will be my people, is tied to what comes before, that is, this transformation of the mind and the heart, in regeneration by God's gracious power so that there is now a, a disposition to obey God and a heart to love God and fear God and keep God's commandments that was not there in, in so many under the old covenant, but is there in all under the new covenant. And all under this new covenant know him. They all know the Lord from the least to the greatest. In the Old Covenant, Israel was, to be sure, his people. But did that mean that his law was placed in their heart and in their mind? No. They were exhorted, were they not, over and over again, to act like what God said that they were. You are, by dint of being the physical seed of Abraham and having been brought out of bondage into Egypt, saved by my mighty hand, brought into the promised land, by my blessing and by my power, you're my people. But did that mean the law was written on their heart and mind? No. Did that mean they knew the Lord? No. So they had prophets come to them over and over again and say words like these. This is Isaiah 1, verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. For the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not consider. Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. Words like that never appear to a new covenant church. Now, there are warnings. If you do not buy from me, if you do not look to me, if you do not love me, there will be a, a very violent language, a spewing from the mouth, the church in Laodicea, this lukewarmness. But there are better promises. I will change your heart and your mind. And again, you're not going to have to say to every man his neighbor, know the Lord. And all their sins are covered and they're all forgiven as iniquitous as they are. And this is why, among other reasons, why we insist upon a regenerate church membership. As best we can determine. 
And when someone shows by life or heresy that they do not know the Lord, they are put out of the New Covenant community. And this is why New Covenant shepherds should not address their flocks like Old Covenant prophets addressed Israel. Yes, there are warnings regarding sin, to be sure, and calls to self-examination, but Paul can write to even the most distressed congregation as saints and beloved with the hope that they have a heart and a desire to do what is, what is right if they're, because he's addressing Christians. And if they don't turn, then the, then the exhortation is, is, is to find new life in Christ. To actually become a Christian and God's grace will transform you. There was a time as Gentiles, as most of us are, when we were, in the words of Ephesus, without Christ, without hope, without God in the world. Not without gods, for they had plenty of those, but without God, the God, the God of the Bible. But there came a time when the Lord... Yahweh became our God, and at that time, and in that same, as it were, transaction, we became his people. Again, this promise in large measure, in some ways, carries over from the old. The Lord will have for himself a people. And they are described at times as God's inheritance. And Paul utilizes that language of the old And when the writers of the new take the promises of the old and bring them into the new, they take on a new new glory. So when Paul utilizes the language of of inheritance, he tells in Ephesians 1, remember there he's praying for the people, and he prays there that the Lord would open the eyes of our heart or the eyes of our understanding so that we would know certain things. And one of the things is that we would know the hope of his calling But one of them is that we would know, as his people, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And this speaks not only of our transformation by grace, but of God's intense love and delight for his own. When I was initially working on this message, I I, I deleted a little section. Not because it's, it's... it's not in and of itself true. I was going to quote something, a line of, of, uh, of J.C. Riles. And Riles said at one point, in contemplating the relationship we have with the Lord, he said, never did servants have a greater master, and never did a master have worse servants or poorer servants. And I get, I get exactly what he is saying. And we could look at this and say, what a lousy transaction on God's part. I mean, we get God. And God says, yeah, and I get you. But brethren, that's not the heart of God. God doesn't look at this and say, I mean, like, like somebody, you know, we say in marriage, you know, like men, it's, it's always men to women, and, I, and, I, and, and, and rightly so. I don't know if I've ever heard a woman say, I really married up. But you hear it very often of a man. I really married up, and I really married up. So that's my own personal and, and I could say sometimes, look, I got you, but you got this. And sometimes in a marriage, you may feel that way. You know, like, you're, I don't know why guys, sometimes a, a woman, sometimes a woman will say, I don't know why you love me the way you do, you know, and, and maybe she's fishing for some compliment there, I don't know, but you know. <laughs> but we could look at this and say, this is a terrible transaction. 
And there's a way we could look at ourselves and say, well, in the eyes of God, are we not worthless? I mean, is, 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 is not this saying that we get treasure and God gets trash. But that's not how the Lord views his own. Yes, of course we are poor and, and we are needy and blind and naked and all of the rest. Sinful and disappointing to be sure. We fail and we frustrate. Yet this is not how God sees his people or addresses his people or treats his people who are in Christ. John says, to as many as have received him, that is, have received Christ, to them he gave the right, the privilege, the authority to be the children of God, to see themselves that way. And behold, John would go on to say at another time, what manner of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be the children of God. See, it's not just that God says you're going to be my possession." That's true. There's a part of that. It's not just that he's our king and we his citizens or he our master and we his servants or slaves. It's not just that he is the creator and we are his creations or creatures. The terms are dearer to that. Listen, even under the old covenant, this is, this is the giving of the, of the old covenant that's going to be passing away or it's passing away. Exodus chapter 19, it's at Mount Sinai. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, note here the language of conditionality. If you will do that, then, then you will be a special treasure to me. But what if I don't always obey and what if I don't always keep? You see, the glory of the new covenant is that Jesus has done these things and then offers them in union with him. It's not be good and then you will be. It's Jesus saying, I will fulfill and you will have or you will be. Now, therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all peoples, for all the earth is mine, but not all people are mine in this way. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He says, these are the words you shall speak to the children of Israel. And then in Deuteronomy 7, Beginning at verse 6, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This language carries over to the new covenant. We read in Titus 2, and I'm not going to read the entirety of the section, if you want to read that beginning at verse 11 later today, but it's where he talks about the grace of God appears that brings salvation. But he says this at the end, verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and, and, and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works and why are they zealous for good works because God put something in their mind and wrote something in their hearts 
And then Peter taking the words of the Old Covenant, 1 Peter chapter 2, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you not out of Egypt, but out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then he says this, who once were not a people. And that's the language of the prophet Hosea. But now are the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but have now obtained mercy. And when these words, Revelation 1, 5 and 6, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and made us kings and priests to his God and Father. So that when Jesus took the cup of the new covenant, words that we will read in just a moment, and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for the remission of sins. He was not simply saying the remission of sins only. But the transformation of the relationship that we once had with God. And somebody says, well, Jim, I thought we didn't have a relationship with God. Well, you did. It was just a bad one. You had a relationship with God, but it was a relationship of enmity. We were set against God's law. Our attitude was, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? We were in need of reconciliation. We needed one to take away the enmity, but he did more than that. You see, he could have taken away the enmity and left it at that. It's possible. Some of you have somebody maybe in your life and you've had issues with the past in the past and they say to you, is it all good between us? And it's like, yeah, I mean, I, I don't bear any ill will. I, I buried the hatchet. I don't want to have you over for dinner or anything. I don't want to have a relationship with you. And God could have said to you, listen, I buried the hatchet. I'm, look, I'm not going to send you to hell, but I don't want to hang out with you. I don't want you to be mine, and I don't really want to be yours. I mean, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not against you, but brethren, God is not only for us. He is with us. Emmanuel, God with us. So that when Jesus died and shed his blood, in bringing about this new and better covenant, God became ours. And we, by grace, became his. This is part of the invitation. This is why we tell you and and woo you to faith in Jesus. You're going to serve somebody. You're going to have some God. And that God will either disappoint you or be yours for all eternity by his grace. Let's pray and ask his mercy in hearing and receiving these things. Our Father, we do thank you for this time together in your house and among your people. We do pray that we would know the joy and comfort that comes from having Christ with us in the giving of the wine and the bread. Lord, receive honor and glory, we pray in his matchless name.